Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for man. <laughs> Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the life, work and legacy of the artist Sarah Purser. And we'll be finding out why it took so long for her to achieve the recognition she deserved. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we explored the National Archives and found out what they say about our history. We also uncovered the secrets behind the building of Adair Manor and debated the history of the EU since 1992. And if you want to listen back to this, or to any of our older shows. Just go to the News Talk app, powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Born in Dublin in 1848, Sarah Purser overcame the many restrictions placed on women to play a pivotal role in the development of modern Irish art. During her career, she was a painter, a stained glass artist, and an entrepreneur, as well as an activist and patron until her death in 1943. Yesterday, a new free exhibition opened in the National Gallery of Ireland on the pivotal role played by the artist Sarah Purser in the development of modern Irish art. It's called Sarah Purser Private Worlds and it celebrates her achievements as an advocate, an arts activist, as well as her artistic abilities. And so to discuss the life, work and legacy of Sarah Purser, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Dr. Caroline Campbell is the director of the National Gallery of Ireland and has an outstanding reputation for delivering research, engagements and digital programmes on art from the Middle Ages to the present day. Donald Maguire is the creator of the Sarah Purser exhibition at the National Gallery of Ireland and before that was the creator of the National Gallery's ESB Centre for the Study of Irish Art and Keeper of Art and Industry at the National Museum of Ireland and he's published and lectured widely on Irish art and artists. Well you're both very welcome and later in the show I'll be talking to Clodagh Finn, the journalist and writer and the author of Through Her Eyes, A New History of Ireland in 21 Women. Well, Donald, I might begin with you, given that it is your exhibition. And maybe could you set the scene for us? Just how significant an artist? Uh, Thanks, Patrick. That's actually an interesting way of putting it, because she was an extraordinary woman in in many ways and uh, for the time that she lived in as well, not just as an artist. As you said, she was born in 1848. Her father was from a brewing family and her mother was from an engineering family. And at a young age, she moved to Dungarvan. And uh, shortly after that, she was sent to school in Switzerland. And around the uh, late 1860s, 1870s, she began to take an interest, a, a serious interest in art and uh, exhibited her first painting at the Royal Hibernian Academy in 1872. And she was 24 years old at that stage. So this was quite late for an artist at that time to start exhibiting, I suppose, especially when we consider how much she achieved in her life. But uh, she took a painting because her father, uh, his business went bust. They became bankrupt and she had to uh, borrow money to, to train to be an artist. But what she she uh, she as a painter she achieved a lot in in terms of the the education that uh, she received in, in Paris 
and uh, and the and the practice that she developed as a painter herself, but also as a portrait painter, which was an important part of her practice as a professional artist to earn a living to make to make money for herself. So sorry to go back to your question, uh, <laughs> which was how like significant. how significant a painter she was. She was she was hugely significant as a portrait painter. She was probably Ireland's most sought after portrait painter. Uh, of her generation and painted all of the important people of her time and artists as well, artists that she was friendly with. We have a painting of her, a well-known painting of Jack B. Yeats in our collection in the National Gallery of Ireland and, uh, and also a picture of Roger Casement. But I think what's most interesting is her achievements in, in, in genre painting, which uh, connects her with Paris, uh, connects her with Par- fr- artists, French artists working in Paris and also artists who travelled from across Europe uh, to work in Paris as well at that time. And it really positions her as an Irish artist in the centre of something that was very important that was happening at that period in, 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 in art, that uh, the focus on everyday life, changes that were happening, aesthetic changes that were happening in painting and uh, the development of modernism. And uh, so it really, she, she connected with a lot of, in a lot of different ways with uh, what was happening in art at the time, but also ran a professional practice for herself as well. And of course, she's best known for her, probably best known for her work as an art advocate and an activist and, um, and a supporter and patron of other artists as well. Her work in setting up on Tour Glynna in 1903, her uh, setting up the Friends of the National Collections of Ireland, setting up the Dublin Art Club and, uh, and becoming a great champion of art in Ireland. And tell us about Antour Glynna, uh, because this incredible uh, advocacy for stained glass windows, and she really was such a hugely significant figure there. Yeah, so she was involved in establishing Antour Glynna in 1903 in response to the appetite in Ireland for uh, stained glass for the churches, the Catholic churches that were being uh, constructed in the early part of the 20th century. And she saw, I suppose, a gap in the market, and this goes back to her good business acumen as well, that she that glass was being imported from European countries, from the Czech Republic and places like that, or Czechoslovakia. And she wanted to create a, a studio that would create stained glass for, uh, for the Irish market, for Irish commissions and for Irish buildings. And uh, set the Antor uh, Glenna up as a cooperative where artists worked together, shared, shared studio spaces to create uh, glass that uh, was unique, was Irish made, but also an important part of it was that the design of it was led by ar- the artists. The indiv- so the individual artist had a uh, a sense of personal expression in the work. And what's great about Antur Glenna's history is we can identify in the history of the work that was made, the, the, the hand of the artist or the the, the style of particular artists and that freedom of expression was allowed within the uh, within Antour Glynna. And this, I suppose, connects in with Sarah Purser's desire to promote Irish art in general and creativity in Ireland. And that uh, and it was also an opportunity to give women artists work, um, women who were struggling to get studio spaces, uh, facilities to make work. So Antour Glynna provided a lot of the infrastructure that was required for women uh, particularly women, but also male artists at that time to and make a, work. And, and a wonderful name uh, on Twiglin, the, yeah. the Glass Tower. The Glass Tower, yeah, it's uh, fantastic. really captures that. Caroline, I suppose it would be true to say that in the, the, the world of art, her, her, her greatness has been recognised and acknowledged, but perhaps her name isn't widely known amongst the general public. 
No, I mean, I would say, Patrick, that her, her name is well known as somebody who was an advocate for art. You know, all the work she did after Hugh Lane's death as well um, to find a place for the Municipal Gallery in Charlemont House, that was all to do with Sarah Purser. Um, but I think her reputation as a painter has probably really suffered. Partly, I would say, it's because she was a portraitist and portraits, once people die, people are not so interested in them often. And a lot of her portraits were also of the elite. She what She had to make money as Donal was said she came from a family that had failed that was bankrupt and so she had to have a successful painting practice and um, someone said one of her friends said she went through the British aristocracy like the measles which is an extraordinary phrase but I think it shows how really really successful she was but when you look at her as a painter of these more private paintings like the ones we have in this exhibition you're really struck by what an extraordinary painter she was and this interests me because, as Donal said, her career starts late. It's a very typical thing for a woman, actually, from an elite background. She didn't have to work. She started painting more as one of the accomplishments that women did. And then when it was clear that she was going to have to make money, this was how she chose it. And she came from an artistic family. Um, The Osbournes were cousins. So was Frederick William Burton. Um, But she really chose the way in which she was going to go to work. And when she went to Paris in 1878-9, she went to the place where the most avant-garde artists in Europe were going. She went to the Académie Julia. Now, just a couple of years after that, John Lavery was there, for instance. It was a place where so many ambitious artists went to train and to think and also to meet and make connections that would keep them going for the rest of their lives. Paris really seems to have been a sort of lodestar for her. She was, as Donal said, a very Irish artist, very proud of her Irishness, but also really wanted Ireland to be connected in a European context. And I think that European connection was there throughout her career. She seems to have been very influenced and and unaware of what was going on in Europe and in European art and she brought that uh, with her then and and it influenced the direction of the very many things she was involved with in Ireland. And she kept up her friendships with the people she had met in Paris. Um, Louise Breslau, the painter who she continued to be friends with, others too, the musician that she'd lived with in her apartment in Paris, um, an Italian singer. Um, And she brought European art to Ireland as well too. Um, In 1898, she organised this great loan exhibition of modern art, which opened in Dublin in 1899. And she continued to be connected to that world. I think in about 1909, she launched a neo-impressionist exhibition in Paris. So this was always, this connection was always significant to her. Donal, I took that line about her overcoming the many restrictions placed on women from the from the exhibition description. And can you tell us about those restrictions? Because it seemed that even amongst those who were friendly towards her, people like John B. Yeats, there was always a a certain sense of superiority or uh, that they you know, they didn't treat her the same way because she was a woman. Yeah. Well, Sarah Purser trained initially at the Metropolitan School of Art, which was almost like a technical college for drawing. And uh, the RHA was really the the academy for professional artists. And uh, while women could take classes there, they couldn't train in the most important room at the moment, which at the time was, was the life yeah. room. Yeah. And to, to work from the nude and uh, working from, from the model was essential to being able to paint history, painting, uh, portraiture, any kind of mythological scenes, anything involving the human figure. So it was incredibly restrict. It was a, a huge restriction on women artists' development at that time. 
Um, for that reason, many artists, women artists, uh, travelled to Paris to the academies that were set up by professional French artists. And this was, again, that they saw a gap in the market. They, they, they realised that women wanted to learn how to, to become, how to paint and how to draw and how to work from the, from the human figure. So uh, Purser was one of many artists from across Europe who travelled to Paris uh, to attend the academies, including the Academy Julian. And she entered a life there that I think probably changed her uh, entirely and changed her course, uh, the course of her life. It was uh, she was living a bohemian lifestyle there, staying in an apartment in the centre of Paris, sharing it with uh, Louise Breslow, who became a lifelong friend, and Maria Feller, a singer, an Italian singer. And she only spent six months there, but it was a hugely formative experience for her and for her career. She also encountered Maria Bashkirtsev, who was this incredibly energetic young Ukrainian artist who was in Paris at the time, who kept a diary and uh, which was published a few years later and became one of the seminal documents of women's experience, women artists' experience at that time in Paris. And if I could just read a quote from the diary from, um, from around 1881, uh, when Sarah Purser was there. And she says, Sunday, December 18th, uh, and she's describing the, the, fr- the people in her, in her friendship group. And she says, and there is also Sarah Purser, artist, philosopher, with whom one may hold discussions on the philosophy of Kant, on life, on the ego and on death that stimulate thought and then impress upon the mind what one has heard or read, that everything is artistic. So it's incredible to think of Maria Bashkirtsev looking up to this uh, Irish woman who had uh, this type of impact on her life and this was at the centre of these interesting conversations around art and philosophy. And Purser would have been 10 years older than Breslow and Bashkirtsev. So she was probably seemed like a more mature woman with more worldly life experience. But they obviously looked up to her and uh, and kept in touch with her. And as Caroline mentioned, Louise Breslow continued to write to Sarah Purser almost, uh, well, yeah, annually and inviting her back to stay in Paris. So Purser, on returning to Dublin in 1879, continued to return to Paris every almost annually uh, to stay with Louise Breslow. She initially stayed in uh, the apartment they shared while they were studying at the Academy Julia. And then she began to stay in uh, Louise Breslow's studio. And they, they seemingly created a wonderful friendship where they continued to correspond. They visited the salons, the salon exhibition in Paris together. They discussed art. They discussed gossip around Degas relationships, Forain getting thrown out of his studio. Uh, they discussed the work of Mary Cassatt and uh, Berth Marceau, all of whom Purser had the opportunity to meet when she was uh, visiting Paris. And, and this, of course, influenced her art that she was making back in Dublin. And we can see the influence of French Impressionism in her work, uh, the influence of Degas, of Manet, of Jules Bastien Lepage, and all of the the artists who were in shaping French art at that time, and how she was bringing back that back to back to Dublin in her own work. Caroline? I can just add something. Yeah. Donald was saying about the life of Parser. For us, it seems so normative to women to live together in a flat, to have this sort of life. We cannot overestimate how totally radical and unusual this mm. was in the in eighteen seventies and eighteen eighties. Most women stayed at home till they were married. They did not have this opportunity. This was really, I think, a transformative moment for her and for them because they had this intellectual as well as social Mm. freedom which they would never have got otherwise. And Caroline, she's often remembered as a champion of other artists and she did incredible work there. But what's great about the exhibition is that it's also showing that she was a significant artist in her own right and that it's her as an artist that also needs to be remembered. Yes, absolutely. I mean, as Donal said, she, you know, she took 
so much from the art she saw in Paris, from the work of Degas, from the work of Manet, of, of others. And she paints these very intimate pictures. Um, they are often subjects which seem incidental, um, like somebody having their breakfast, uh, a woman playing with a child's rattle. And she makes them into things that you really want to find out more about them. For her, painting almost becomes a story. She's not an artist who's making history painting, but she's telling narratives very much in these very apparent simple, very painterly, very sketchy and very quickly painted works. And Donald, given that she did so much, how come it took so long for the Royal Hibernian Academy to recognise her formally? It seems like she was in her 90s before uh, she got full membership. Yeah, it's, it's. I suppose in retrospect, it seems strange, but I suppose part of that story is that there were no women members of the Royal Hibernian Academy. Women weren't admitted as full uh, Academy members. So while it it, it did take her to the age of ninety five. It was it was a, an achieve that was an achievement in itself, becoming the first woman member of the academy. And uh, for years, for decades, in fact, she saw people who might have been lesser artists who were exhibiting less at the academy be uh, appointed uh, full members before her. And I'm sure it, it must have been incredibly frustrating for her to watch so many artists who she had probably supported their careers as well. And, and probably people who were jealous of her practice as well, being recognised by the Academy before her. And these wonderful domestic scenes, and Caroline has explained so much the way you want to learn more, they tell a story. In a way, they're very much stories that would resonate with viewers in the 21st century as, as well. Things like showing breastfeeding, a woman breastfeeding, and scenes that, you know, might have been considered shocking or inappropriate back then, but now would be seen as perfectly normal and natural and and something to be championed. Absolutely. And there's something that... I suppose that's what makes them very modern paintings. And it's what painters at that time sought to, to capture the everyday life of, of normal people. And um, but what I suppose what uh, th- there's a risk with paintings like that, that they, they can become sentimental and because they are everyday scenes. But Purser, like other artists from that period, great artists from that period, it introduced a kind of a psychological dimension to them where you do wonder who is this person, what's going through the, the, the mind of this person. So Le Petit Déjeuner, which is this uh, oh, celebrated... Oh, I love Le Petit Déjeuner. ...from our own collection. It's a small work and it's a very simple painting of, a, of her friend, Maria Feller, the singer, uh, who she spent time with in Paris, uh, sitting at a breakfast table with a piece of bread and uh, a cup of tea. It reminds viewers probably of uh, Degas' absent drinker. It, do- it does. <laughs> it's like people sitting in a cafe in Paris and it really makes you want just to pick up the bread or croissant next to, or at least it makes me, and dip it into the coffee cup and have it. It's a really immediate picture. And yet, as Donal says, you're not sure what she's thinking, Marie Feller. You're really encouraged by the artist to look into her mind. There's something quite introspective there too. And I think it's that combination which makes Purser quite unusual. And similarly with the the picture of, uh, as you mentioned, the woman breastfeeding, which is, uh, it, it's, it's not alluded to in the title. It's a very simple, matter-of-fact title of a woman with an infant and, and there's another young woman in the background. But the, the baby has just rolled back and its eyes are closed. And anyone who's had a child uh, knows that that's a, a baby that's just been well-fed exactly. and has, has dropped off to sleep. But there's, again, that psychological dimension to the mother's face where it's not quite clear whether she's staring at her baby or she's staring into the, into the distance mm-hmm. Uh, with other more complex thoughts on her mind that day. 
and there's always this sense of of, the, of of something else going on in these people's lives. And to capture that, I think it takes a certain amount of I- intimacy between the painter and their and their sitter as well, and the time spent with these people. That not just seeing them as a subject, but trying to get, I suppose, inside that person's thoughts and uh, and their everyday life as well. And Caroline, it's even interesting where her artworks ended up because some of them are in private collections, some in other collections. That for the exhibition, you've had to, you know gather these all from all around these different locations. Donal has done an extraordinary job in bringing them from these different private collections um, because these paintings were made for people who Purser knew very, very well. And they're so different to the more public portraits that she made. I mean, she did really well out of making portraits of aristocratic children for a long time. And if you look at those, they're terribly, their status is very significant. In these works, status is stripped away and you are really looking I think as people as people regardless of who they were Um, and for us I think it's very important at the National Gallery to be showing an artist who really was a remarkable artist not because of who she depicted but how she depicted them and how I think how she actually thinks really in paint. And even though she was on the board of the National Gallery for many many years and was a significant figure there I think this is the first full exhibition devoted to her in the gallery. She was included in an exhibition about women artists in Ireland that was organised in the late 1980s, a really seminal exhibition. But yes, this is the first dedicated show to Sarah Purser. And the more we're finding out about her, and goodness, there'll be more to do too, we're realising not just that great public life that she had, not just that great life of influence, but her great activity as a painter. And I, for one, am really keen to find out more about that with a taster of this exhibition. Well, we're talking history and tonight we're talking about the life, work and legacy of the artist Sarah Purser. We're going to take a very quick break now, but when we come back, I'll be talking to Clodagh Finn, the journalist and writer, about what Sarah Purser was really like, her character and her determination. So stay with us here on News Talk. Welcome back. We're talking history and tonight we're looking at the life, work and legacy of Sarah Purser. And I'm delighted to be joined by Clodagh Finn, a journalist and writer and the author of Through Her Eyes, A New History of Ireland in 21 Women. Clodagh, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So we've been discussing the life and work of Sarah Purser, but can you tell us what she was like as a person? Boy, would I love to have met her. I mean, first of all, she was so accomplished. Um, She was so gifted as an artist, but she had so many strings to her bow. I mean, she was a very gifted businesswoman. She had seen the potential of Guinness back back in the 50s, and she invested um, in Guinness stocks and shares. So by 1962, her biographer, Elizabeth Coxhead, said she had the largest fortune of any Irish woman, so she had money. But she had much more than that because she had come from very humble beginnings. So I think she was a person who had a great vision and a great love and a great uh, for the visual arts. And she was incredibly generous. She wanted to use her money to support other artists. And uh, 120 years ago, she set up on tour Glynna for stained glass artists. And I would love to have met her because I think she was incredibly witty as well. She was very evocative in her words as well as in her brush strokes. 
I read about the opening of that and she said um, it was so cold in the studio when they opened on New Year's Day in 1903. They were all gathered around the kiln in a new but also cold workshop and they were drinking champagne out of teacups. And she went on to say, you know, stained glass might be the thing that is more intoxicating than all the wines of the world. She was quoting Chesterton there, but she said it's troublesome and expensive to make. So you can't be in this romantic studio with silk cushions. You know, you had to be in a grubby workshop getting your hands dirty. And she kept working right up until the end of her life. And there's two vignettes from that time that I think really give you an idea of the kind of person she was. There's one I particularly love. When she was in her 80s, um, she leased Mespel House and she was trying to get the landlord to fix the roof. And he must have been saying, there's nothing wrong with the roof. So she actually went up with her friend, um, Oliver Sinjin Gogarty, in his personal plane. He was a, a talented amateur aviator. And they flew over Mespel House and they said, there it is, there definitely is a hole in the roof. So I thought that gives a measure of the kind of gumption she had. And then there was a wonderful anecdote about uh, her not, I suppose confrontation isn't quite the right word, but an argument she had with President Douglas Hyde over a, a, a portrait that had, of him that had appeared on a stamp. Yeah, she was nearly 95 at that stage. She was in her early 90s and she just didn't think that the portrait of him was the best quality. So she she spoke her mind. Um, I don't actually know what he said to her, but... They, they made it up and she actually, she seems to me too to be quite conciliatory because when she was in her studio, in the stained glass studio, Lady Gregory and Yates dropped in and they weren't that impressed by what they found and Yates wrote an article suggesting that Purser was giving in to the demands of commercialism and she was furious. She said, well, you weren't invited to visit the studio in the first place. And his treatment of her, quote, went beyond the limits of decent manners. But then in that case, she made up um, with him again. And there's another kind of story of her when she was studying in Paris, living um, on a pound a week, which can't have been easy, even in 1878. Um, you know, she would have met people like um, Degas and Manet and Brett Marisot, but there was a colleague of hers who said, oh, I really envy you. And she said, don't be envying me. That's that's Sibet. That's so stupid. And she shook hands with her, you know. So I think she was a person who was really good at forging links and really getting the best out of people. She was very funny as well and had a great sense of humour. And you even see it in the way she made that joke about how popular her paintings were. It's very funny. When she came back from Paris, she actually was really lucky and I think it was the start of her success because she was commercially successful as well as being, you know, um, a really good artist. So Lady Georgina Gore Booth of Lissadell House had seen one of her portraits and she commissioned a portrait of her own daughters, Eva and Constance, later Countess Markovich. And Purser, um it was seen by the rest of the friends and she suddenly found herself with loads of commissions and she said, I was so popular, I went through the aristocracy like the measles. 
Very good. Now, Claudia, you've written some wonderful pieces about Sarah Purser and about how you've been, you know, ambushed by the details of her extraordinary life, its exuberance, yeah. her determination. But you've also mentioned how she was criminally under the radar. And I wonder why do you think she has been under the radar for so long? And is it is it sexism and misogyny that because she was a woman, if she had been born a man, would this have been a very different reputation? Well, if you think of Hugh Lane, Hugh Lane is very well known and his, you know, efforts to set up a gallery in modern art. And that is actually all down to her in a sense, because she actually funded uh, an exhibition of John Yates and Nathaniel Holmes' work. And it was she who introduced Hugh Lane to the quality of Irish artists. And that spurred him on to, to consider setting up a gallery. And they were very good friends. And actually, they worked with another kind of neglected, incredible Renaissance woman, Sarah Zelia Harrison. So she and uh, Hugh Lane worked very closely together to try and set up a modern art gallery in Ireland. But somehow, Hugh Lane is remembered, and he's a household name. But when you look back, there are so many women who are forgotten. I think part of it is sexism. Um, at the same time, Lady Gregory is very well known, but people would say that Sarah Purser was to visual arts what Lady Gregory was to the theatre. Um, and then I think when the people were who were writing history, later on, they sort of discounted them. And um, even at the time, there was a recognition that in leaving women out, it was the wrong thing to do. Very interesting, around 1920, the critical and later director of the National Gallery, Thomas McGreevy, said, people are going to start asking questions if the board of the RHA um, don't let women in. And he will say, it will think it is because the women are better artists than themselves. So I think there is a sense of envy in it. Um, as well as sexism, you know, I think there's a sense that it's a small pie, the pie of success, and that there was a struggle to kind of get recognition and maybe the the, the loudest voices shouted um, loudest. So there's an element of that. But it's wonderful that now we have private worlds um, is opening in the National Gallery because hopefully it will introduce Sarah Purser to a much wider audience. But she is one of, of I would say, hundreds from that period who have been um, left criminally under the radar. And it's even remarkable, you mentioned on Tour Glynna, the Tower of Glass or Stained Glass Cooperative. So many of the stained glass windows that we have around the world today owe a debt to her and to that collective. And I'm going to quote Sonia Tiernan now because this is actually incredible. She says, It is almost certain that every day somewhere in the world a person looks in admiration at a stained glass window produced through her efforts. So it's time to start talking about it. And we are. So that's wonderful. Uh, it is absolutely wonderful. Well, Clodagh, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Clodagh Finn, journalist and writer, the author of Through Her Eyes, A New History of Ireland in 21 Women. Thanks so much for joining us.
Thank you. We'll be back with more on the legacy of Sarah Purser right after this break. Welcome back to Talking History. Tonight we are looking at the life, work and legacy of Sarah Purser. I'm delighted to be rejoined by my panel of experts, Dr Caroline Campbell, the Director of the National Gallery of Ireland, and Donald Maguire, the creator of the new Sarah Purser exhibition at the National Gallery of Ireland. Now, Donal, let's talk about the exhibition. It's a wonderful exhibition sponsored by the ESB. It's free. It's all contained in this one room. You have these 16 portraits. Tell us, what will people see? People encounter, yep, 16 pictures. And uh, one of the pictures is by Louise Breslow. The other 15 pictures are by Sarah Purser. And I hope with this exhibition, it'll remind people of this well-known, what a fantastic painter this well-known figure was. She is celebrated for so many different uh, interesting reasons, but this is very much an exhibition about her, Sarah Purser, the painter. And uh, in some ways that was a, that was, that links back to the beginning of her artistic training and her career in Paris, but it also is a, is a part of her career that entered a more private domain or a more private sphere uh, that wasn't part of her public portraiture and public exhibition, the exhibition of her work at the RHA. And uh, the exhibition is called Private Worlds for that, for partly for that reason. It It's about Sarah Purse's private world, her, her private practice, but it's also about the, the private worlds of her subjects as well. And um, and, and in, in, I suppose in particular, the private worlds of, of her women subjects, uh, which she seems to have favoured in her, in her genre painting. And they, the paintings uh, represent and capture all sorts of scenes of domestic life um, from knitting and uh, eating and uh, caring for children or just young women seemingly contemplating life and existence and spending time by themselves. And th- I think there's an opportunity with these paintings to really engage in Sarah Purser's own artistic career, but also in thinking about who were these people. Uh, there are two paintings of Kathleen Carney, who was, of course, the mother of Brendan Behan, the sister of Pather Carney. Uh, she was a favourite model of Sarah Purser's. She met uh, Kathleen Carney as the she was the uh, she worked for Maud Gaughan in Maud Gaughan's house and uh, developed a friendship with her. Uh, Kathleen came around to the house and she would paint her very informally and very casually, but uh, create these paintings that have incredible depth to them of this woman, this extraordinary woman in her own right, who was raising children, who was involved with the Republican movement, who was very active politically. And we had, th- these are some of the few portrayals that we have of Kathleen Carney by Sarah Purser. Um, the picture by Louise, Louise Breslow is, a, is an interesting picture in itself. And it, I think it's probably the first time it will have been seen or is available for public display. It's come from the Purser family's private collection. And it was a painting made by Louise Breslow when Purser was in uh, France, uh, in Paris on a visit. And it's a very simple picture of Purser sitting on a folding chair in a, in a, in a garden in lush surroundings. And um, she's kind of perched on the edge of the chair as if she's about to get up or make some sort of movement. But there's an intensity to the picture that reminds you something of Sarah Purser's character. Um, Purser obviously took the painting home with her and it's been in the, in the family collection ever since. But uh, it's, 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 I think the fact that Louise Breslow is now recognised as one of the most important women, female painters from that period uh, 
uh, to have a portrait by her of Sarah Purser, one of the few portraits of Sarah Purser, is uh, well, I hope will be interesting for for visitors to the exhibition to see. And what goes into designing an exhibition? What do you ha- what issues do you have to consider? How do you decide on the thematic focus? And and I know, for example, that you looked at the correspondence, you looked at all these different aspects to really get a a, a deep understanding of who Sarah Purser was and what was motivating her. Yeah, I suppose there's there's the story and the history that's there and you're trying to do that through tell that that story through objects and and also give people an experience of those objects in the exhibition so there's different layers i suppose to the to how you construct an exhibition uh the the paintings are central to it but there's also other types of material that can you you can use to flesh out those uh narratives and in this exhibition we've included letters uh from a collection that's in the national library of ireland that's a hugely important collection of of i think probably hundreds of letters in total uh from from uh, Louise Breslow to Sarah Purser over the space of about 30 or 40 years. And they are not only hugely important in understanding Sarah Purser's life, but also Louise Breslow's as well. So anyone who has ever written anything on Louise Breslow has consulted these letters. But they share, as I said earlier, so much of their their, uh, artistic and life experience with each other that really communicates the deep friendship they had. So there, we have letters from that collection on display. Uh, and some of them include uh, little thumbnails of works that uh, Louise Breslow was working on at the time and submitting to the Salon in Paris. Um, there's also a copy of uh, Maria Bashkirtseff's uh, Journal of a Young Artist, uh, which will be on display. And uh, so the, we've, there's, a, there's a range of material that tries to flesh out more fully the, the narrative of the exhibition. But at the same time, it's, it's a very focused exhibition uh, uh, that's about this, these, this particular type of painting that Sarah Purser enjoyed making and that connects her deeply within the kind of the, the, the Parisian experience that she had early in her life. And Caroline, it connects very well with some other wonderful exhibitions. I'm thinking of the Lavinia Fontana one, mm-hmm. and uh, that it's a good time to, in the National Gallery to be recognising and and celebrating women artists these different uh, achievements throughout history, especially for some women who perhaps weren't recognised in their own time. I think it's really important that the gallery continues to diversify in terms of our programming, but also in terms of our acquisitions. And one way which we can do that with historic art is by representing more women, among other makers within it. Um, This year, we had the fantastic Lavinia Fontana show, which I've already discussed with you, um, and my colleague Aoife Brady as well. We have a show, we have It Took a Century, the exhibition of the Royal Hibernian Academy, which goes on still for a little bit longer. Um, And we've made a couple of really important acquisitions recently of women artists. One of a painter who was not known in her time at all, who actually wasn't able to paint for much of it, and that's a German artist called Hannah Hoch. We hung this painting just a week or so ago in the collection. Um, she was branded a degenerate artist by the Nazis. She was an artist very well known for her work in collage. And in 1937, when this painting was made, she was living alone in Berlin. She felt profoundly isolated. And she made this self-portrait of herself surrounded by flowers, naked, it seems, surrounded by flowers. And really, it's been wonderful, the, Im- the impact that that painting has had on people as they've seen it, as they've come to the gallery. Um, we also have another very different flower painting or painting about flowers that's recently gone up by Raquel Reich, who's one of the women artists from the past who actually was recognised in her lifetime. She, like Sarah Purser, lived to a brave age. Um, she was in her 80s when she died. 
died um, in the mid-18th century, she was from a very celebrated Dutch scientific family. And she made these extraordinarily precise and realistic, but also very moving still life scenes at a time when still life, when floral painting was one of the top genres of art in the Dutch Netherlands. So Sarah Purser fits into a pattern of programming and activity that we're really developing and growing at the National Gallery of Ireland. If I could add to that programme, actually, the work that the gallery has done, the Sarah Cecilia Harrison Essay Prize. That's a very good thing to mention. Well, we have this Essay Prize, which is now in its second year, which is named after one of the other very important women of the late 19th and 20th century in Ireland, Sarah Cecilia Harrison, who was known as a social campaigner. She was on Dublin City Council, wasn't she? She was the first woman councillor. First woman councillor. Actually, a very difficult woman, she's often said, but difficult is often used as a euphemism for talking about women who wanted things to be done and who knew that they were after. We have this Essay Prize, which we are uh, we, we will announce the next winner of at the end of November. Um, and this is for anyone who's working on women artists in Ireland. So it's a really important initiative and we hope that it grows and expands as the years go on. Donald, something that confuses me, though, given that she had to, this was her profession and she got these various commissions and I think she was, you know, reasonably successful throughout the career, but she died 80 years ago in 1943. And I'm just not sure how she was viewed when she died at the age of 95. Was she seen as as a, a remarkable figure who spanned, you know, such a long period like, was there the recognition there, even if it was just amongst those in the art world, or did it take a, a bit longer for that recognition to arrive? Yeah, I think there's different ways of looking at that. She she probably wasn't recognised as a painter at that time or soon uh, for, for decades after her death. She was certainly recognised for her contribution to Irish art more generally. And we've touched on that a little bit, but she she was also well known as a socialite as well. She had these soirees in her house, these famous soirees where she brought together in Mespel House, where she lived. Um, where she brought together uh, the cultural elite, politicians and hosted these parties that seemed to be in the, the kind of cultural memory of, of, of many people at that time, well after she died. And um, so she, I think she was looked on very fondly for those reasons as being someone who brought people together and created things that changed Irish culture and changed Irish art for the better. Um, her painting practice was best known for her portraits and whether that was painting posthumous portraits uh, or painting uh, official p- commissions. And uh, I suppose these, these weren't most, the most exciting kind of artworks being created in the early 20th century. So uh, while she made, she made a lot of money um, making those portraits, they, were, they, they didn't tend to be celebrated uh, in the same way as maybe perhaps the work of other artists was from that period. But yeah, I suppose this exhibition is trying to draw attention to the work that was made more privately and that that wasn't as popular with the with the the, the buying public in Ireland uh, and uh, was connect, but connected her with uh, a, a, a type of modernism that was emerging elsewhere and had, was influencing art across Europe. So yeah, it's it, it there's no clear explanation, I guess, to why she uh, why. Uh, she hasn't had an exhibition for a long time. In fact, the, the first retrospective she had 
uh, was one she organised herself in her own <laughs> lifetime. And she saw it as a failure because uh, she didn't sell any work at it. So there, there, uh, Irish art was a complicated world, I think. In the I still can't help thinking, though, that if she was a man, it would have been a lot easier for her and uh, the recognition would have come sooner. Certain, a lot of things would have been easier. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, certainly the, uh, the professional recognition of the Academy came very late in life. And all of these things matter for an artist, I suppose, at that time, much more than they do today, perhaps. And John B. Yeats said something like that too, where he said, it's a pity, what was it, a pity you don't have a beard. Yeah, he, John Butler Yeats, I think, there's a few letters that show that he was particularly patronising and, and yet uh, had a friendship with her. And she seemed to be able to navigate and deal with that friendship quite well. But uh, I think at one stage he called her a, a peddler of portraits and then another time, in a compliment, he said, it's a pity you don't have a beard. Uh, <laughs> suggesting that it, she'd be better if she was it'd be better if she was a male artist, and I suppose another way of reading that is maybe that he meant he, she would have achieved greater recognition if she was a man, or maybe he was jealous or because t- she was much more <laughs> successful than he was at that stage. Yeah, I do think Caroline there probably is an element of jealousy in the way she was received in her lifetime, uh, yeah. because uh, she was doing all these different things, and even the the leadership she showed with the stained glass collective and all these different areas that she was a force of nature. You know, apart from everything else, she made things happen. She certainly did, and she was really dedicated to it. And I think the way that she was perceived after her death also has a lot to do with the status of woman. As it changed in Irish society, women were so involved in the revolutionary period. And then, of course, their their roles changed. Um, And when she died in the early 1940s, she could be celebrated as a great old lady, but in a sense denigrated by that too. And I think the destruction of Mespel House is one of the great tragedies um, of Dublin's architectural family that happened in the 50s. Wouldn't it be amazing if that space with its interiors, but also the sense of the conversations that went on there had survived? The other thing, Caroline, is that if there was ever a movie made about Sarah Purser, you would have an incredible cast of characters because, you know, Donal mentioned the party. She really did seem to to get to meet and know so many remarkable women and men from this period, including the, the revolutionary decade of, you know, that, that we celebrate with the decade of centenaries, you know, uh, Caseman and Yates and Maud Gone and, you know, uh, but very much, very much aware of and knowing uh, so many of the, the women and men who shaped Ireland in this period. Absolutely. And not just in Ireland. I mean, if you look at her life, you know, she's born in the year of revolution and she dies in the middle of the emergency um, of the of what was the Second World War elsewhere. And she was really well connected in Ireland, but also in Britain and also in France. And I think, you know, we really do need more attention on Sarah Purser um, as an artist, but also as somebody who was a cultural connector um, and dynamo of the like that we are hopefully going to see again. So, Donald, is that her legacy? She was this great cultural connector as well as a great artist and champion of the arts. Yeah, she she seemed to be at the centre of a lot of important moments in uh, early 20th century Irish history. We mentioned her involvement with Hugh Lane as well and uh, supporting his collection of modern art and the establishment of a modern gallery for Dublin. But she, um, I think also the, the fact that she, she turned to art as an option to make a career when her family went bankrupt, I think is testament to her great determination and ambition for what our Irish art could be. That uh, she had a huge enthusiasm for, for all sorts of projects and all sorts of creativity and where creativity existed within Irish art as well, uh, whether it existed in uh, glassmaking and craft or in fine art. 
And um, so I suppose, as a, I, sh- I hope this exhibition reminds people uh, that she that she she was a maker as much as a, a shaper, if that makes sense. And and while she was involved in everything, in so many things, she had a great creative spirit as well for making her own work. And wonderful support from the ESB Centre for the Study of Irish Art as well to make it possible. Yeah, and this is uh, the the 10th in a series of exhibitions we've done with the ESB. We've had a fantastic relationship with them over the last decade and hopefully it's one we'll see continue into the future. And it's, it's allowed us to explore aspects of Irish art like this that uh, probably wouldn't not have been addressed otherwise that involved a certain amount of research and time dedicated to, to, to bring them to the public. So Caroline, I'm going to leave the final question to you. The legacy, how she is viewed now in the 21st century and how we should remember her. Sarah Purser's legacy as a painter and as a figure, I think she was much more recognised for a long time as somebody who was an artistic dynamo, somebody who made things happen, someone who connected Ireland with Europe and the wider world. But as a painter, she's remarkable in how she uses the stuff of ordinary life and turns them into mini psychological dramas that we, the viewer, want to look at. And I think people looking at this exhibition will not just come back to her work again but they'll come back to the work of many unsung artists women artists of this period and think about how they use the difficult circumstances of their life to make what's profoundly moving and quite different art. Well I think that's an excellent note on which to end our discussion on the life work and legacy of Sarah Purser my thanks to my panel of experts Dr Caroline Campbell the director of the National Gallery of Ireland Donald Maguire the creator of the new Sarah Purser exhibition at the National Gallery it opened yesterday it's free to enter and uh, our congratulations to Donald and to Caroline for bringing it all together we also heard from Clodagh Finn the journalist writer and author of Through Her Eyes A New History of Ireland in 21 Women well that brings us to the end as I say of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer Marais O'Sullivan and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.